welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. The topic for this episode is how to explain rationality to your grandmother or explain it to me like I'm five. You didn't introduce us. No one I'm going themselves. to introduce oh, okay. us now. Oh my God. I'm <laughs> such a f- fame whore. I need my name out there right away. My name. <laughs> my name is Katrina Stanton. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Inyash Brodsky. Ah, oh, there's two of me. <laughs> yes. I'm multiplying. And I'm Steven Zuber. <laughs> so let's dive right into it. Okay. Inyash, how would you explain rationality to your grandma? Who is Polish? She is she yes. alive? I don't know. Because <gasps> I, mean, I I don't really talk to her because I can't talk to her because you know she only speaks Polish. So I'm going to pretend I have a grandma that speaks English for this episode. Okay, sounds oh, good. But before we get into that, I want to do a little preface, like disclaimer thing here for this thing. Okay, because th- these two already know this, but none of the listeners do. And I was talking about this yesterday with Shelly, I believe, at our meetup. People have several times... Sorry, am I getting off tra- topic? We named names, and she points out that we named her last time. Yeah, but she was okay with it. Yeah, she was. Okay. I, is, that why, is that why we exchanged a look? Okay, yeah. Uh, okay. But, but she's fine with it. Okay, so um, we got a number of emails saying, why don't you do a Crash Course in Rationality episode? And that was something that I had not wanted to do from the very beginning and it was actually one of the reasons I hadn't done a podcast ever, aside from the, you know, Harry Potter Methods of Rationality, even though people kept asking, hey, why don't you do something explaining rationality in general? Because I am of the opinion that if you are going to create something, it should either be something new or something that is an improvement on what has come before. And I couldn't do that with an intro to rationality, because an amazing intro to rationality already exists out there. And it's um, Eliezer's series of posts over at LessWrong.com. And anything I would do would just be a pale imitation of that. And really, it, w- it would be a disservice because it would distract people from the good explanation, you know? I, I would be making the world worse by putting out a shitty explanation. So I wasn't going to do any of that. When I was finally talking to doing this episode, it was like, oh, it's just a conversational thing about rationality. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's fine. I can do that. Not this episode, but this um this podcast, rather. So I didn't think I had anything to add. Um... And if you want to uh, actually get a good intro to rationality, I would say go to lesswrong.com and read through some of those earlier sequences. Go on. The only thing I would add, the full length of the sequences is something like the length of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. So if you're kind of just like, I wonder what this whole thing is about. You don't want to spend three months reading. And that's like a really good speed run of the less wrong sequences. Yeah. Um, but that said, there are... Some summary pages, some intro pages, you know, click around the wiki and, uh, you know, find, you know, whatever word you're looking for, rationality, bays, and, and check out some of the, the summary posts and that, that can give you a good quick crash course too. So, or, well, that, that was, you know. or you can follow the link in our, on our blog and go through a Bayes rule guide. Yes. Uh, but that was, that was actually one of the things that convinced me because it was pointed out that that is a ton of reading. And, you know, sometimes people just want a little summary of what is this rationality thing and why should I care? And that's why I thought, okay, if my grandma were to ask me, what is this rationality thing? What would I tell her? And this is what I came up with, more or less. Oh, and also, you don't have to read the sequences of blog posts on the website if you don't want to. They've also been collected into a book, in which is a much more structured format, called Rationality from AI to Zombies. And we'll put a link to that up, too, yeah? Indeed. Fantastic. 
It's available on Amazon, I think, for a minimum payment of $0.00, but a suggested donation of 5 bucks. Yeah. Worth it. So, what is rationality? What would I say to my grandma? I would start off with two axioms. The first being that reality exists and that it's possible to know things about reality. And we can have our own series of episodes about those questions if we want. But I thought that generally grandmas agree with those two things. You don't have to argue them into agreeing that reality exists and it's possible to know things about them. So I'm just taking those as, you know, axiomatic at the beginning. I have never met a solipsistic grandmother. Check. <laughs> okay. I, I like the grandmas you've met then. So the primary thing about rationality in my mind is the map versus territory distinction, which is a... Um, a aspect of epistemic rationality. And to me, that's really what rationality comes down to. So I'm going to go into that right now. I would say to my grandma, grandma, you know how if you have a map of New York, that is a really good tool to have. And the closer your map of New York is to the actual territory of New York, the more power you have to do things. You can plan your actions. You can decide, well, if you're a city planner, you can decide what buildings are going to go. But the better the better map you have of New York, the better your ability to interact with the city of New York. But they're two very distinct things. The map can be wrong. The territory, New York itself, is never right or wrong. It just is. It's there. So in this analogy, reality is the territory. Reality is New York itself. And our beliefs are the map. And that's, that's not even completely accurate because it's not just our beliefs that are the map. It's what we view reality as that's the map. Like everything that I think is the map. It's, it's not just like, oh, I believe this and this. It's the fact that I see Steven here in front of me is part of my map of this room. And hopefully part of the territory. And hopefully part of the territory. What would you say to your grandma if she answered, well, Human beings are all so different, and we all have a different experience of what reality is. And you were going to say something? I was going to jokingly say, can you do that in an old lady voice? Uh, one moment. No, you didn't really. What <laughs> if, no, no, I'm going to try. Okay. What if she said, Inyash, honey. Oh, God. How it, what about how different human beings are from one another and how we all have a different idea of what reality is and, and the way we perceive things with our unique brains is, is pretty different. And I would say, yes, that's part of the problem, that we all have slightly different maps, but there is still only one reality out there. And the closer we can get our maps to match the reality, not only will we have a better ability to handle reality, but we will be closer to each other as well. Because if both our maps correspond more correctly to reality, they will also correspond more to each other. I apologize to all the senior um, women out there. We have lost our entire senior audience oh, now. Oh, God. And I apologize to everybody else for making that recommendation. I'm not sure how it was It was kind of creepy to me. It because was. I, I, I laughed and cringed. No, I mean, like, as a general old lady voice, it was great. But, like, I, I saw my own grandma, and she doesn't sound like that. And so it had this weird uncanny value. I, I don't think many grandmas actually sound like that. I don't know. I've not met very many grandmas, honestly. But stereotypical grannies do sound like that. Cartoon grandmas. Cartoon grandmas. When I think of stereotypical grandmas, I think of Betty White. Oh? Yeah, she's yeah. kind of That's badass. That's good, yeah. yeah. That's good for grandmas. Older than sliced bread, famously. Sliced Seriously? Bread, sliced, sliced bread came on the market in like 1927, and she was older than that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fantastic. So, <laughs> part of this um, distinction is that your map 
I mean, the territory is what it is, but your map, if you know ahead of time that it is not exactly the territory, it is just your representation of the territory, you don't have to believe it is completely accurate. You can have various degrees of belief. You're like, I know this part of the map is really good and spot on and has got every little stair and crack, but this part of the map is sort of fuzzy. I know there's some kind of building here, but there may be dragons, you know? <laughs> and so that, uh, that, that is the whole degrees of belief thing that you can be very confident of some things like the sun will rise tomorrow morning and be very anti-confident of other things like there is no such thing as supernatural magic. Um, but you can also accept things with some degree of probability that's less than that. And you also know that despite how extremely confident you are that the sun will rise tomorrow, if it doesn't rise tomorrow, that means there was a flaw in your map and you shouldn't have been quite that confident. There is no flaw in reality. Inyash, honey, mm-hmm. cupcake. Yeah. Um, I'm your grandmother. You can do the grandma voice. I don't want to okay. anymore. You, you should, no. because then if you call me Cupcake in your normal voice, it's like you're flirting with me. Okay. I'm like, that is cupcake. distracting right now. Cu- cupcake. <laughs> That's distracting. I have another question for you. Please, grandma. How is... How big your eyes are. <laughs> if we all have different perceptions of reality, how do we get close to what exists in the territory? Ooh. You're skipping ahead slightly. Sorry. It's okay. Uh, I, but I can go ahead and skip to that if you'd like. Okay. Uh, the part of rationality is the process of making sure that reality changes your beliefs, that your beliefs are entangled with reality, and you're not trying to force your beliefs onto reality. You are letting them be manhandled and mauled and destroyed in any way that reality needs to destroy them so that reality is affecting what you believe. Uh, this includes things like knowing what standards apply to evidence and just being familiar with the scientific method in general. Accepting critiques. That if you hear a critique of your position from someone else, you don't dismiss it out of hand because it's not what you believe. You take it into consideration, and especially if they have good evidence for their side. A, a litany I really like is, what is true is already so, and acknowledging it doesn't make it worse. So if you really, really don't want to go to the doctor because that mole is, you don't want to know that it's cancer. The thing is, it either is or isn't cancer already. And if you find out that it's cancer, that doesn't make anything worse in reality. All it does is make your map more accurate. So never shy away from knowledge that may hurt because it can only help you. And in my opinion, these are the sorts of things that people who have a like internal desire like a real need to know the actual truth will come to eventually i when i <laughs> i gotta thank my parents for for their their religious upbringing because in my religion it was very big about the religion is the truth and the truth is really important and we must spread the truth to people and so i was deeply ingrained with this love and and desire to have the truth all the time and eventually you start asking yourself things like how do I know that what I think is the truth is actually the truth? You know, the fundamental question of rationality. How do I know what I know? Why do I believe what I believe? And anyone who cares enough about the truth will eventually ask themselves that question. And then they will, in my opinion anyway, then they will start seeking out methods to verify what they believe. And they will eventually stumble across the scientific method or or rationality or other similar methods of finding out what is true based on uh, empirical research. So that that's a big part of it is to make sure your map accurately reflects the territory by using these tools. 
Now, an important part of this, I actually had this earlier, but this works out really well. An important part of having a good map is being able to update your beliefs when you do run into this, when you do run into new evidence, which is where uh, Baze comes in. And I believe we mentioned in the last episode a link to a good, intuitive, easy explanation of Bayes' theorem. It's still not the easiest thing in the world, but it is uh, the concept that it's how to integrate new evidence that you find into your current beliefs to update them in a direction that puts you closer to what reality actually is, puts your map closer to the territory. Uh, I, and one example that I got, which I really like, is that uh, Mormons are told that when they read the Book of Mormon, Mormon, they will know that it is the truth because they will get this warm, glowy feeling in their heart. And uh, the question, the, the basic question of that is, what is the, if you do read the Book of Mormon, what is the likelihood that you will get a warm, glowy feeling in your heart if there is a God versus what is the likelihood of getting the warm, feeling, glowy feeling in your heart if there is no God? If there's still a lot of things that could cause the warm, glowy feeling upon reading uh, that are not the God, then that's not very good evidence. If, you know, if it's written very poetically and it is inspiring to you and there's cultural baggage behind it and you've been told this will make you feel warm and glowy... There's psychologically a good possibility you will feel warm and glowy even if there is no God in our universe. So it's not great evidence. Can I interject there? Sure. I've read, I tried to read part of the Book of Mormon because I picked it up from a hotel mm -hmm. and I can't, I personally can never, cannot imagine feeling warm and glowy <laughs> while reading it or even being able to get past the first page. Oh. Thank you. I was going to say something similar. I have a copy out there, and I was going to mention how it's written in terrible, like, fake-sounding 17th century English. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it was written 150 years after people right. talked anything like that. But, uh, but, but According to you non-believers. Well, so the other thing to keep in mind is that I think that there are other examples of, of introductory bays. And what you mentioned was more akin to, I think, the conjunction fallacy, right? So you feel, well... It's this. basically a formalization of extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. It's not time for conjunction fallacy yet. Yeah. And uh, this goes back to the, actually, the UFO theory that I think two episodes ago, not the UFO theory, but my UFO experience a few episodes ago, one of the things that I thought when I saw that light and had this overwhelming feeling that aliens were coming to get me is, is there other things that can explain this feeling as well or better than aliens actually coming. I suppose nothing would explain it better than aliens actually coming. But are there other explanations as well? And yes, there were lots of other explanations. Therefore, simply that feeling and that light was really shitty evidence that aliens were actually behind me. Well, it's important to keep in mind that something did explain it better than aliens actually being it because it turned out not to be that. Right. So whatever it turned it. out to be actually did explain it better. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you do have the alien hypothesis, there's all these other questions like, why are they visiting Podunk Me in, you know, a suburb of Denver as opposed to going to the president? Why are they even landing on our planet as opposed to using it for whatever they need? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a stupid it's, hypothesis. It's a large hypothesis. Yeah. That isn't sufficiently answered by saying, well, they wanted my cattle or to ruin my crops or something, whatever <laughs> it is aliens are said to do. Yeah. So you have degrees of belief in your map. Uh, you update your map based on evidence. You make sure that you have good evidence and you know what constitutes good evidence. Uh, next on the list here is it puts rationality puts a lot of emphasis on knowing what flaws you have in thinking, knowing what flaws are common and correcting for them. The analogy for this is the analogy that I like anyway, is that 
if you have a camera and you you look through you know you look through the camera through the lens and there's a spot where the there's a building that's like really wonky it's like the lines are everywhere and you're like wow that is a crazy ass building over there and you just assume there's this weird building in your field of vision but eventually you may re- um come to the conclusion that it, it's not a weird building there's a chip in your lens right at that spot and it's something that you don't know at first, but you can find the chips in the lens that you look through if you put enough effort into it. And once you know there's a chip there, you can uh, adjust for that. Cupcake? Yes. Er, cupcake? Are you talking about biases? I actually am, yes. Oh. And about how to overcome those biases. Excellent. <laughs> yes. So you you know, if you can, you look at it from other angles as well, or you ask other people what they see, or you simply know that there is a flaw there, and so whatever is behind that flaw cannot be trusted as entirely reliable. And I think a wonderful, a very top, uh, timely example of that is politics. Humans have a very ingrained emotional reasons to take sides in politics and to defend their sides very strongly, regardless of how true they may be. And so uh, the, the classic term is politics is the mind killer. Whenever politics gets brought into the discussion, you have to be aware that uh, you may not be seeing things clearly. Emotion is likely to rule because of evolutionary reasons. So be very careful at that point apply your tools more than you would in other cases because it is a minefield for thinking be very vigilant in that field one one way to help overcome that is if you happen to be friends with anyone who's historically savvy you can discuss whatever current topic that you're having a deliberation about in the context of you know whatever 1700 france right. and it, then it that also- way that it puts some distance between you and, and the topic rather than it being part of your identity like people's current politics are it also often helps to have friends who you know are smart and you respect that uh are the on the opposite side of you i do have a few republican friends and that's that's the whole getting a picture of the same area from a different camera it's you know you can see if they can explain it well and you can listen to them long enough to get their explanation, you can see some other parts of reality that you would not have seen otherwise. If you haven't had a conversation with somebody that you disagree with politically that you acknowledge as otherwise smart, you owe it to yourself. It's Those are some of the most rewarding discussions I've ever had are with people that are on the other side of political topics than I am. And if you can both keep calm and, and share your ideas and defend them, the consensus from these people and myself when we come away from these conversations is that we both feel better and smarter. So talk and learn and grow. It's great. The one one example that I like a lot is orchestra recruiting. Is it recruiting? Hiring? When people hire uh, players for an orchestra, when you know someone else retires and the position opens up, they used to just watch them play and then decide from that. But uh, <laughs> the theory is that they want whoever plays the best. And they came to realize that there are some biases in their choosing, which they weren't, I mean, as much as they were like, no, I'm not sexist, I'm not racist, as much as they were confident they were making the decision just based on what they were listening to, uh, the hiring data didn't necessarily bear that out. So they blinded themselves by putting up a screen, which helped things a bit, but they found that they also had to put down padded carpeting to 
go behind the screen because if they heard someone in heels walking to it, the hiring rate would go down just because they heard heels. It was an unconscious bias. None of these people were sexist. But once they put in the padded carpeting and the blinds, women started getting hired at a much higher rate than they had been previously. And that's a good way of when something's brought to your attention, you can take steps to mitigate it. Yes. If you can't rewrite your unconscious beliefs, since that's mm-hmm. probably impossible, just taking outward steps to fix it is a great way to adjust for solving that problem. And I thought that, that that's a great example. It is also, in my opinion, an example of where stated preferences diverge from actual preferences. I suspect, because everyone states all we want is the best player, like so the music sounds the best. And th- this helps them get that. I suspect that's not all people actually want when they go to an orchestra. They want to see a performance, which I, I think why more attractive people get hired more often, because that's part of the whole performance aspect, right? I've never been to an orchestra. Oh, wait, yes, I have. But I maybe not close enough to see the people play. I can't comment on that on personal experience. My favorite but- example of that is uh, <laughs> there's uh, piano competitions often where people, you know, play piano and judges decide who's the best piano player. Uh, they afterwards took the uh, recordings of those performances and they played, uh, there were five com- com- competitors, uh, they played them for a group that only heard the music and didn't see the video. And they chose uh, who p- who played best. And then they also played it to people who only saw the video and didn't hear any of the music. It was muted. And they chose a different person who was best. And without fail, the person that the visual people chose matched who the judges chose that were, you know, supposed to judge who was the best player. Yeah, because when you see someone play, what you really want to see is you want to feel something. And the music helps you feel something. That's what music does. But also part of that is the performance, the the passion, the banging on the keys, the hair flying as you're going. So if you – the visual aspect turns out to be incredibly important. I would not have guessed that. I am not very music savvy, but I would have thought that it would be more how it sounds, not how it looks because it's music. Well, think about food. Think about your enjoyment of food. It has a lot to do with how the food looks. That's true. I have seen the Penn and Teller bullshit episode where they dressed up like salads from McDonald's and charged 30 bucks for them and people like them a lot more than they would otherwise. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's different from the look. That's more the perception of price and value. Well, they also put it in a nicer bowl and not the plastic shell. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So a number of things um, can can have an impact when you don't expect it. Yeah. Uh, But yes, you try to you try to correct for your flaws, your biases. So the way the way I always thought of it is that for if I were to wrap up to my grandmother, uh, that formal if she knows about formal logic, which I hope she does, because that's taught in school nowadays, right? Anyways, (laughs) Anyways, <laughs> assuming it was nowadays, <laughs> uh, Grandma, you know what formal logic is, right? Of course. Excellent. I knew she, she spawns the best children. My grandma grew up in a small city or a small town, rather, and she didn't have electricity in her house till she was in her teens. So I don't think she was taught her formal logic tables in okay. primary school. <laughs> All right. Well, I would say that formal logic is a systematized method for retaining truth value between statements. It's generally what it's accepted to be, and rationality is a systematized method of making your beliefs more closely match the reality around you. <laughs> that, that is that is primarily what rationality is to me. Uh, that is the epistemic rationality. There's also the second, what I consider secondary, which a lot more people consider the primary part of rationality, but to me it's slightly less important, is instrumental rationality. Or as the term is, rationality is the art of systematized winning, of finding out what you want and then using the skills of rationality to get better at achieving your goals. 
That includes things like um, getting the cooperation of other agents, knowing uh, what payoff matrices are, and just knowing decision theory in general. How to use, you know, rationality to come to a better decision. (laughs) And I think my favorite current example of this, which I don't know if you guys will agree with me, is um, Pharma Bro, Martin Shrikelli. Is that how you pronounce his name? Shkreli? Yeah, Martin Shkreli. You know, Something? the asshole who bought the uh, uh, AIDS drugs that only his company can produce and jacked the price up from $15 a pill to $700 a pill. Well, that was the whole basis of his business. Yes, yes. The, the thing is, you know, only his company makes it and people don't want to die. And this pill is, you know, what keeps them alive. So he's like, hey, it's worth $700 a pill to not die, right? Eh, eh. So, yeah, and everyone hates him right now. He's been called in front of Congress. But uh, it is it is my contention that if you wanted to lower prescription drug prices in the country, because right now there is prescription drug prices are pretty fucking crazy. And there's some systemic reasons behind this, which I won't get into because I'm sure, just having a brief conversation with my grandma. Uh, but if you wanted to lower prescription drug prices, his current actions may be the most rational course to take. You play the villain and you exploit the fuck out of the system so badly that no one can ignore it and they hate it and they finally get some motivation to change the fucking system because all he's doing is playing within the rules that the system has set up. So I pictured him as being a really bad, bad guy, as in not being good at being a bad guy. Uh Uh-huh. And... No, he's now, terrible at being a bad Well, guy. now I'm really hoping that, like, in two years, he comes out with some time-stamped footage of him saying that was his intent the whole time, was to was to shatter the... I know he won't, but wouldn't, he that be, wouldn't that be a great cartoony resolution? Uh, yes, uh, it would, but I, I, this, is, this is the same reason I loved Professor Quirrell, because he, you know, was he was trying to unite Magical Britain against the next Dark Lord, and, you know, he was doing it in a bad way. But no, it's sometimes if the system is fucked up and the only way to fix it is to unite people in opposition of a cartoony villain, you become the cartoony villain to fix the system. And sure, your own reputation sucks and people hate you, but your if your goal was to fix the system, that is the rational pursuit of that goal. Cupcake. Yes. It sounds like you might be going to that um crazy to that crazy conclusion because it's exciting and fun yeah. and not because it actually has anything to do with the truth and reality. I know. But So it's what a are nice we supposed to be thing. focusing on as rationalists? Reality itself. Oh. <laughs> but that is my example of a thing where instrumental rationality might tell you to do things which you would not normally think is a good idea in the pursuit of your goals. A counterintuitive solution to a problem. I probably wouldn't get more into it than that because, you know, there's a lot to systematize winning, and uh, to me, it's it's the epistemic rationality is the more important part of it. I would also tell my grandma, because I do think this is relevant, that there tends to be some cultural trends in rationalist circles due to, partly due to founder effects, uh, partly due to the conclusions rationality brings you, and partly due to the fact that it is kind of a youth movement. Uh, that, that'd be one thing I would tell her right off the bat. It's sort of a youth movement, and so it has a younger culture. Rationists generally subscribe to utilitarian ethics, or a, der- a derivation thereof. Wait a second. Yes. Are you saying that elderly people like me can't be rational? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that it's a fairly new philosophy, and so, like most such things, it, you know, grabs the fiery youth and, and slowly filters its way throughout society. 
I will say if you're about to make a list of things rationalists believe, mm-hmm. to choose your words carefully. No, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm just saying in some of the cultural things behind it. I, I agree. And I, I think you're probably, I, I can't imagine being too inflammatory, but I'm, I'm eager to see the response. Please go on. Okay. If I were, if I were to clarify what you were talking about, it's more that you're talking about a rationalist movement. Mm-hmm. So a right. community of people who are interested in a certain kind of rationality, um, and who are talking to each other rather than, rationality in general. So what yes. somebody on the street or grandma or maybe not a five-year-old, hmm. um, I think that maybe we aimed a little bit too low on the age um, in the introduction, but um, what they might think of as what is rationality. Yes, because I, I think the rationality system itself is the main thing we're in, interested in. But if my grandma wants to know what rationality is, these cultural things are part of that as well. I want to take a step to explain two things. One, the explain like I'm five comes from the subreddit name, mm-hmm. explain like I'm five, which isn't meant to talk to somebody like they're literally a five-year-old, but it's to presume virtually no background knowledge. And so to that, to that note, you mentioned that utilitarianism is popular among rationalists and utilitarianism is the ethical subscription that consequences are what matter and maximizing the well-being of the, depending on which consequentialist you're talking to, but more or less it's about maximizing as much happiness as among as many people as possible, or as many sentient beings. And would you agree with me that that is much more common in the rationalist community than it is in the world at large? I would definitely agree that it's common in the rationalist community. I'm not sure how uncommon it is in the world at large. I don't think it's uncommon, but I think it's less common. That could probably be true, yeah. I don't know that we have any evidence to back this up. Uh, I will dig up one of Scott Alexander's survey results. Sounds good. Okay. Again, come to the website. Yay. Look at our links. We're trying to be as detailed as is practical with our uh, episode description and links for, since it's sort of impractical to explain everything we talk about, like, like I'm five, mm-hmm. like you're five. We want to be as, as detailed, as I said, as, as is practical yeah. in the descriptions. We don't want to give you two hours of reading every two weeks, but it's there if you want it think the culture also is a bit um, economically libertarian-ish, uh, and that um, in in it's generally more sex-positive and poly-friendly than the rest of the world. I was going to say that was the first thing I noticed yeah. when meeting more rationalists. For listeners, I want to explain what Inyash means by poly. He's referring mm-hmm. to polyamory, not polynucleated Gons. or... <laughs> Um, Many pointed squares. <laughs> yeah, not, not polygons, um, although we like them too. So polyamory is simply um, people who have multiple um, partners, multiple romantic partners. I want to dive this into a whole episode. We totally uh, should. I had a friend call me a couple weeks ago, and in Fort Collins, where I'm from, this really wasn't a thing, which is weird because it's not a small town. There's a hundred and 30-something thousand people, mm-hmm. but I don't think I knew anybody who knew anybody who was uh, into the poly community, and a friend of mine who, who lives there called me a couple weeks ago, and he was like, so I, are you familiar at all with this thing? And I was like, actually, yeah, as it turns out, it's uh, it's kind of popular down here, and you know, it's we record out of Denver, I'm not sure if we've mentioned that, and uh, you know, it's not a far drive, but the fact that there's this kind of big gap between that uh, relationship schema that that groups have but anyway so i was trying to explain it to him to the best of my knowledge 
And I think, anyway, it, it occurred to me at the time that we were doing that, that it's ripe for a, a long discussion. Yeah. Um, I do also want to say that you're speaking as a mono person. Yeah. Um, well, I think that there's been a bigger, that people have been embracing polyamory and open, um, ethical non-monogamy more so over the years. It has always existed in Fort Collins. <laughs> it, it very well may have. I guess what I'm getting at is that it, it was hardly out there, as you know. So, uh, and and to, to be perfectly clear, I, I'm speaking as as a fan of of monogamy, but not a and not someone who's disfavorable towards any other preferences that people have. Right. So you know, this isn't coming from oh, people in my group weren't like that. Um, we were but, very careful to have our token monogamist on the podcast. I guess, yeah. What? So, Inyash, why are you telling your grandma about why rationalists tend to be more, more fiscally conservative? And um, did she ask about your sex life? No. But <laughs> yeah, what's it, up with that? I don't know. It's it's just part of the culture. Like the another one is that we're very a-religious generally, not necessarily anti-religious, but just religion is silly and it's not a thing we bother with anymore. I want to different. I want to distinguish that from how. The skeptic community treats religion, and I, I notice a lot of the mean word is circle jerk. The polite the polite word is patting oneself on one's back. Okay. Of yeah, I shook off my religion. You know, man, really. And so there's a lot of fun. And I, I went through that phase. It, was, it is a lot yeah. of fun to argue religion with people. Oh God, I um, went through several year phases. Yeah. That. And but then it gets really dry. Right. Uh, but the the thing is, is that I don't meet a lot of rationalists who congratulate themselves on shaking their faith. And I, I think I saw. I talk with, it might have been Eliezer Yudkowsky, I forget who it was, but it was somebody, one of the major figures, probably Eliezer, and he was like, it's a lot like answering the werewolf question. Alright, cool, werewolves aren't a thing, let's not spend a lot of time patting ourselves on the back for getting that question right. Like, it's really, if, if you shake off all of the, the baggage that comes with it and all the, the indoctrination, it's really a really easy problem. Yeah. Uh, so. And all of these, I just want to say, are also things that are not, like, hard rules. There are religious rationalists. It's just um, more prevalent in the rationalist community than in the general uh, populace, which is why I bring it up. For sure, yeah. And if anyone who... Like, is... if if you are the religious rationalist, you're the guy that sticks out. Right. People are like, that's kind of weird, but okay. That's how come comment. We're not going to bite your head off. No one, no one's rude here. Yeah. That is the other thing. <laughs> as long as... Try not to be rude. I think that that's... Um... That actually is a pretty big one, too. Try not to be rude. That was one of the things I was going to mention. That and so, Inyash, you're are you are you officially wrapped up or almost wrapped up? I have I one last one. Please go ahead. Okay, uh, I was going to say that all those other ones are just general tendencies, but I think this last one is actually kind of a cultural norm. Like it, it is actually a thing that we try to encourage. Uh, this last one that I'm about to talk uh, that a social norm is that no ideas are taboo. And as such, people aren't shunned for advancing arguments on reprehensible subjects. And I don't mean that there's no ideas that we don't think are terrible or reprehensible, but there's nothing that we can't talk about. Like, the, the joke form of this is, you make a compelling case for infanticide. <laughs> but uh, the more serious case is that racists, for example, are allowed to present their arguments. And in the general populace, if someone started coming in, you know, saying racist things, it'd be like, fuck you, you're racist. We don't care. Get out of here. We're not, we we're not going to tolerate this. Whereas oftentimes in the rationalist community, you'll be like, okay, what you're saying sounds kind of racist, but give us your evidence. If you can back it up, we'll hear you out. Right. Uh, and then we will argue with your evidence as to why we don't accept it or why we think it's wrong. Because 
That's important. Or equally important. Except we, might, if you we might change our minds yeah. if your evidence is that compelling. Yeah. Bring that evidence to us if you want. I'd be curious. This isn't necessarily an invitation for racists to bring their evidence to us right now. <laughs> no, it is not. Unless you can do so politely. But yeah, please, yeah, scratch that. Honestly, um. I, I, <laughs> I probably wouldn't bother to engage it because I have too much on my plate already. But there are some people that will. It would depend on the claim for me. I, you know, if they're, they're going to... So and also I, was the it, evidence they bring. Was it Francis Crick, one of the the, the Crick or Watson? Crick or Watson, whichever one it was, got a bunch of flack a few years ago for suggesting the possibility right. that Native Africans might be genetically inferior to other subsects of the human species. I Let's made not a joke use the about term that. Genetically inferior. Let's say have a bell curve that is slightly to the left on IQ spectrum. Well, is think, that what his claim was? Yes, that's what his claim was. Oh, but but, Genet- he, he, but, but it, did he did he claim it was genetically based? He did. So that that's what I meant. Yeah, yes, to, okay. to qualify. But the thing is, is that I would hear him say that, and I'd say, "Can you show me your test results?" Rather than be like, "Oh my god, I can't believe he had say that," because right. that, that's a strong claim. That's terrible. But it's either true or false. Right. I think it's probably false, but let's let's see what he has to say. If and it is true, then, you know, it's already true, and knowing that doesn't make things worse. Exactly. If anything, knowing that is the only way to make things better. Yeah, that's, exactly. that's the whole thing. That's the takeaway. And there's, there's also, you know, does this actually have any implications on the real world? Because you still can't judge individual people by what a general, you know, racial profile might be. Yeah, bell curve anomalies exist, and that whole thing is not really productive anywhere unless we have no, a good long not. talk about eugenics so again that's a whole episode yeah well it's it's all it's it's one of those fun topics when i try to explain to people at you know at work or whatever mm-hmm. hey so you know what is uh this whole rationality thing about what do you guys get together and talk oh, about don't tell no no <laughs> okay. i'm just going to say that in general it's the kind of thing where you can get together and raise any topic however contentious okay. even sometimes deliberately inflammatory and have it be a jumping off point and no one's going to crucify you for saying whatever it is that you want to you want to bring up so i'd say it's a place where it's okay to be wrong yeah yeah it's okay to be wrong and it is a moral good to be less wrong yeah Uh and the only way you can get to that point is if you explore the places where you are wrong if you just wall them off and say we're never going to talk about them you don't make your map any clearer yeah in fact i would add that when i talk to people about rationality i talk about um, how it's a great thing to try to disprove yourself. Yes. And that's a, a good rationality tool, and it's an important one in your toolkit, is to um, pro- try to prove the other options. I will say it's been a hard one for me personally to put into practice often. My brain does not typically go to, how can I prove myself wrong? No. You know, I mean, I make an effort to sometimes, but it is an effort. I think it... I don't think I've, there's a person who's natively built to flinch into looking towards the what if I'm wrong question, right? Uh, there might be some. I'm imagining the person on the savannah, you know, <laughs> cl- just petrified in self-doubt about whether or not, you know, that, that rattling of the bushes was a tiger or not. Mm-hmm. Now, the one who, well, that's not the best example, but I, I can't imagine strong self-doubt being a, a selected feature, but it's one that we can now select for Ideally. For Ideally, a good scientist would want to try to prove, um, you know, what they call the null, the null hypothesis, but, um, look at other options, see how reasonable they are. And instead of trying to prove themselves right. And again, that's a whole other conversation about publication bias and the file drawer effect, but why that doesn't actually happen in science. 
but it's, um, again, a moral good. So, Stephen, my grandma knows a lot about rationality now. What are you going to tell your grandma about rationality? I would tell my grandma to listen to your explanation. It was, it was <laughs> quite comprehensive and covered almost everything I was going to say. Oh. So, we don't rehearse these beforehand. We don't. We, we sometimes share notes, but not every time. So, part of it I already talked about being able to discuss any idea fairly and honestly, mm-hmm. and whether that's someone else's idea or your idea. And this is actually something that you, you did miss that I think is, is integra- more integral than any of the utilitarian or whatever. The celebration of changing your mind. You don't typically get applause, but the, if, if you look at any politician, oh, they voted for this in 1992, but now they think the other thing, right. um, they, they, that's seen as a bad thing. In the rationalist community, that's seen as a good thing. It means that you're amenable to changing your mind. A good deal of effort is put into making yourself open to revising your beliefs and possibly changing them completely. There are some fun techniques that people work on, like this is an important part of the project. Uh, so people give a lot of thought on to how to make that happen more fluidly for you, etc. So it's it's a fairly key feature. Yeah, since I joined the Rationalist, since I learned about Less Wrong and the rela- Rationalist movement, I have changed my mind on incest. Okay. So a great technique is to find things that really are icky to you or upsetting to you or carry a massive social taboo that you buy into and taking the time to deconstruct that and, and figure out, you know, what, what the actual, what the truth is. Um, a lot of these are, you know, incest. That's more of a should statement than a factual statement, but as a rationalist, I can change my mind about should statements too, to be a better person, a kinder person, and um, a more accepting person. And I think should statements are just as important because a lot of it is what we want to know is what we should do, right? And what the way things actually are greatly impacts that. But that's one of the reasons we're figuring out what things are so that we know what we should and shouldn't condemn or promote. Absolutely. So that's a good example of finding a good place. If you want to get some practice, I think, yeah, if you, if you've already lost a religion or if that's not something that you want to start first with or ever, I'm not going to say you have to be an atheist, but find something that, yeah, you find just repellent bestiality. As long as we're on the, 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 I'm still working on that one. (laughs) I'm still working on that one. That's tough. My, My general consensus on it now is, you know, as long as you're not hurting the animal, the, at the very least, you could do, you could probably do something better with your time. But you know, I I'm I'm not gonna go out there and, and tell people. I I'm not really gonna comment on it. But I will say, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to say the biggest thing that I changed we my mind move on away from the sex thing, at least away from the the animal and sibling fucking. The uh, the biggest thing I changed my mind on, and it was fairly early in my introduction into the rationalist community, was death. I lost my religion at some point in my... I, I don't know if I ever really had it. We touched on this earlier in a previous episode. But there were a few years where I went through and I'm like, I'm going to die and the world's going to be, you know, oh my God. And, you know, I found some solace in the whole Mark Twain quote about, you know, like, oh yeah, but you were dead for millions of years before you were alive and, you know, you'd be back there. It's like, I won't be freaked out, but like, I still don't want to be there. I'm glad that I'm not in that pre-birth state. I don't want to return to that when I die. And in one of my favorite books called Unweaving the Rainbow by Richard Dawkins. He has this great poetic analysis of what it's like to live and die. And he talks about how 
we're going to die and that makes us the lucky ones because the number of potential people so vastly outnumbers the number of actual people and the fact that you're alive right now is so statistically improbable that it's like a miracle get out there and enjoy it i found a lot of solace in that yeah, it's pretty and it is but then i i so this is kind of the opposite or this is related to looking at a yuck reaction looking at something that terrifies the hell out of you so i when i finally got around to re-examining that i said no Dawkins, that's great, and if this was 100 years ago, I'd be on board with that, but I can't resign to just die if there's any way around it. So after some deliberation, I signed up for cryonics. I make an effort to... I mean, I just never, like... I guess, what am I trying to say? You changed how you lived your life. A bit, In accordance to um, a change in your opinion. Yeah, I think so. I fully hope to live to be as long... as, as old as I want. Let's put it that way. So... Yeah. So you did some you did some soul searching. You looked at evidence. You looked at um, other thoughts about death and dying that were out there, and uh, you changed your mind. And that's an okay thing to do for sure. And I I, th- I think that's the the you know. And if I change it back, that's great too. But this is one topic where there is some there's not a strong consensus. I think that in the rationalist community, at least that I've seen, maybe there's some, some data on Scott's blog, but that's something that I feel like not a lot, not enough people there. I mean, there, if you were talking about death, there isn't a strong consensus, but there, it's still much more, um, we're still much more anti-death than the general population. Oh yeah, for sure. Then higher than the base rate, but I've been, while I'm imagining it's something like 80% utilitarian, I'm not sure what percentage are, are anti-deathists. All right, we both said something. What did you put something? You were talking about how there are a lot of people who are very interested in longevity, and I think in the rationality movement, and I think that goes along with people who are interested in superintelligence and artificial intelligence. Those are also more uh, more common concerns within the rationalist movement too. Transhumanism in general, yeah, uh, and transhumanism is basically the thesis that. It's okay to have aspirations beyond what biology gave you as far as for your own physical well-being. And I did explain this to my grandma once. Yeah. I said, Grandma, we're both wearing glasses. Neither of us are content with what nature gave us. Now, that, I think that's kind of a cheap shot for transhumanism because it's not – or it's a cheap it's a cheap point, rather. It's a good point. It is, but it's not the same as, like, brain augmentation or – you know, synth body upload, whatever, right? So it, it, but it generate it, it illustrates the general concept. It does. I, Cheap I, and easy are different things. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So what's something you've changed your mind on? Uh, wait, before we do that, oh, yeah. did you have anything else on your list? Hmm. Unrelated, but I was going to give another example of, of Bayesian updating. There's, there's the traditional example that I really like. And, um, if you also, if any of this, well, what's the traditional example? Well, if any of the, the talk of Bayesian, probability or probability theory in general is fun to you check out leonard Mladenov's book the drunkard's walk how randomness affects our lives um that's my book pitch for the day the one of the one of the classic examples for just illustrating what bayesian updating is to somebody is say you're approached by a mathematician pushing a stroller with two swaddled babies in it and you can't tell what sex they are and you ask is at least one of your children a girl and the mathematician says yes so then you can ask yourself, what is the probability that they're both girls? And the point to illustrate here is that before asking that question, the probability that both of those babies are girls is one in four. Because you have boy-boy, boy-girl, girl-boy, and girl-girl as the four options. After confirming that one of them is a girl, you knock off that boy-boy option 
So now you're, now the chances that they're both girls is one in three. In other words, you've been given more information so you can update your probabilities. Exactly. And there's, there's an exact amount to which you should update your, your belief by based off of the, just the number of possibilities that there were. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one of my favorite examples because it, it illustrates updating and it's really simple fractions. So. One of the ones I like that's just very simple and that, I don't know, a decent percentage of people don't get is if you flip a coin 10 times and the first nine times it comes up heads, what is the probability that it's going to come up tails on the 10th flip? 50-50? Right. But a lot of people will say it's a much greater probability that it will uh, that it will come up tails because it's come up heads so many times, it's due for it to be tails. And, that you know, it's incorrect because you have more information now. If you would have asked before the flip started, what are the chances that you'd get nine heads and one tail, you'd say extremely low. But if you've already flipped the coin nine times, the two options that are left are heads or tails, so it's a 50-50 shot. Well, that said, with nine out of ten, it'd be less strange to me, but if it was 999 times out of a thousand, mm-hmm. I would say we have we have an unfair Unf- coin. Right, yes. And so then, then you can use your, your Bayesian updating to say, look... The fact that it's hit head so many times, it is not one in two. I'm willing to bet more than I would bet whatever. I'm, I'm willing to bet... God. Yeah, that you're cheating. Yeah. yeah. Or, that, or that, for whatever it's reason, the coin is... going to be heads. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So... So, yeah. Yeah. But I, I like that one because it's a demonstration of the fact that probability is in your... Probability is in the mind, not in the reality. Uh, probability is an aspect of the map, not of the territory. No, like, well, if you roll the dice and you cover it with a cup... And you ask someone, what is the chance that it's a six? Whatever it actually is, it's 100% of what it is, right? In the reality, it's either 100% a six or 0% a six. But what the probability is that it's a six is one out of six because you don't know what it is. So you have to give equal probability to all options. Right. So then, and that's exactly it. Probability exists in the mind, not in the territory. It is six or not in your pro, your prior estimate. So. When people talk about Bayesian statistics, they'll often use the word prior. That's just the the word that they use for initial estimate. So, you know, if I pull out a quarter and say heads or tails, your initial estimate is going to be 50-50 after a thousand throws. And it's if we're getting some weird results, you can then your, your new estimate, your posterior probability is going to be your, your updated estimate. Excellent. Any fun things you changed your mind on? We never asked. You gave, you gave the, the incest... Uh, example. That's why I no, didn't no, no. But one. we never asked Katrina what she would say to her grandmother. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Well, again, Ilyash, you've covered some great things that one should say to one's grandmother. I love the map and territory. That's a. It's really good getting into what reality is. The idea that we believe in an objective reality, one that exists no matter what's going on in your head, and um, so you covered a lot of great points. I think I might, in addition, tell my grandma that rationality, the rationality movement is about living your life as a scientist and applying what you do as a scientist and, and how you look at data and how you look at evidence to everything. Being I, curious, yeah. being curious and, um, wanting, you know, wanting to learn and wanting to know. And this doesn't mean getting a PhD and, and running a lab experiment. I liked mm-hmm. Carl Sagan had a great quote. Whenever you check your belief against reality, you're doing science. And by that, by that standard, I completely agree that anytime that it's not enough just to have your little belief in your head and just leave it there unchecked and believe in it strongly. If you can test it, go out and look and see if you're right. And if you're not, you should want to change your mind. That's, that's another key, po- key component to, to rationality is not just 
having a map territory distinction and having mental models, but wanting those models to be accurate. Katrina, as your grandfather, I'm worried about this rationality thing. Why don't you believe in things like love anymore? Why do you think it's so irrational to feel emotions? You really do just have the one old guy voice. (laughs) I, I don't at all. I just want my emotions. I want my emotions to be more in line with reality and what I see as, you know, as reality and the best course forward. But doesn't Spock always say that emotions are highly illogical? I think actually you're bringing up a really good point, Grandpa, because a lot of times emotions steer us wrong. It's part of that human bias that we were talking about earlier. But emotions are also wonderful and a part of the human experience. I would say that, yes, it's true that Spock does say that, but that doesn't make it right. Spock is not your your go-to rationalist guy. And I was actually just explaining this to somebody today about, uh, and I think the there's a less wrong post on this as there is on a lot of things called feeling rational or feeling rationally. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if this is his wording or not. I don't think so. But the way I explained it today was that it's not about not having feelings. It's about having your feelings line up with what's actually happening and to an appropriate degree. You know, so if I'm trying to think, I had, I had a high school, my high school biology teacher told me about at the time that his wife woke up from a dream where he was being something, doing something mean to her and woke up mad at him. And she stayed that way for like an hour. And I thought that was, and we were both, you know, laughing about it. This, you know, wasn't a terrible thing for him, but that was funny because that was absolutely not feeling rationally. She woke up, knew it was a dream, but she still felt pissed. Uh, and I, you know, it's, it's one thing to shake that, you know, to have that and then shake it off a few minutes later, but it's another thing to like stay mad for an hour after having a bad dream. Yeah. I think that, um, having, having rationality and having, um, rationalist tools in my life makes it easier for me to feel the way that I feel like I should feel about things, um, to, to reflect on things. If I'm having an outsized emotional reaction or if I'm having honestly, the wrong emotional reaction given the circumstance. Actually, I think it would be a great idea to do a whole episode on emotions at some point, both both emotions and the whole straw Vulcan fallacy, which is what I was trying to mm-hmm. point out. A lot of times rationalists get the whole, well, I guess you can never feel any emotions thing. And you're like, no, that's not what rationality is. Yeah. The, the straw Vulcan is the TV tropes definition for the Hollywood rationalist and I think, yeah, I'll save what I was going to respond with to for that episode because that, that is a big topic and it's fun. Yeah. And it, it's a popular misconception, but we'll save it for another day. I don't want to be like Spock, even though Spock's pretty cool. Yeah. Am I the only one who didn't love Spock? Yes, I guess. Spock <laughs> From the looks was of cool. He was also just a really cool character. He made for good stories. For sure. So even if he was a bit of a caricature, the fact that you got good stories out of that made you like him having the character in the show. Let me qualify. I never saw the show. I saw the new movies with uh, the okay. the fun guy from Heroes. Um, and in fairness, original series was kind of hit and miss. It wasn't nearly as good as Next Generation. And which one was Spock in? Original series. Okay. Yeah. My, my main exposure to Spock was from some clips that Julia Galef played during a talk on the Straw Vulcan, which we'll link to in the this episode or the next one or both. And... There was one where he is on some planet and he, I don't know, some flower spores or something get in his head and he falls in love. And, you know, then he realizes at the end that that was all irrational and that he then he's, he, he gets away from it. And I'm like, you can still have feelings, bro. Come on. <laughs> love is great. Love is fun. Yeah. I want to hear what you changed your mind on. 
What did I change my mind on? Yeah. Unless, so unless, unless you got nothing. <laughs> I've never been wrong about anything, Stephen. Yeah. So, I'm still, I'm I've still never had witness. to change my mind. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, shit. What have I changed my mind on? I've lately been worried that I'm not, uh, this isn't something I've really changed my mind on, I guess, as much as it's been a worry that I'm not feeling emotional enough about certain things. Like, I, I, I just recently, um, saw the John Oliver episode on, uh, abortion, which I think was, or abortion laws, which I think was two episodes ago. That was a good one. Yeah, it was. And I, you know, I, I'm one of those people who believes that abortion should be available on demand without apology in all cases. Like, I, I, I am far to the left and I don't care. I think it's a goddamn right and it always should be. But, um, when I watched that episode, I felt like I should feel outraged, and I, I recognized that me from six years ago would be having an emotional fit, and I didn't really feel much of that anymore, and I don't know if I'm like just, if I'm feeling outrage fatigue, or if I'm really insulated because now I'm finally at a place in my life where I'm starting to reap the privileges of being, you know, a white male in America, and so I, I'm not, I don't have that visceral feeling that laws impact my life a lot and i don't like that I, I feel like i should have a greater emotional reaction to these sorts of things Ineos, you should feel the way you feel it's okay it's okay to feel the way you feel yeah. it's okay to not feel strong emotions about something like if, if someone dies or if abortion uh, laws or people die if abortion laws are stopping um women from getting the care that they need or you know it's okay to not have that all the time. Also, I mean, I, they call that stuff outrage porn for a reason. Mm. And I was going to say, as far as outrage fatigue, it is election season. I'm sure that a lot of us are experiencing outrage fatigue. But that said, I do... Sometimes least, I just cry. I want to see if I understand exactly where you're coming from, because if Inyash isn't driven emotionally by this problem, and I, I didn't see the episode, I'm sure it was good, and I'm sure that it, it was horrifying, if I'm, if I'm reading this right, right? And no, it wasn't actually that horrifying. It's just a bummer. And so, well, in so much as it was, people are having their lives ruined for absolutely shitty reasons. So, but the thing is, if you don't feel an emotional reaction to that, there's very little other reason for you to get involved to try and help. Well, there are other ways to elicit a better emotional reaction in Inyash. For example, we could have a movie about a specific person who wasn't able to access a safe abortion. And so actually they mentioned this on John Oliver. So she yeah, asked okay. over the phone. These are the things I have in my closet. What can I do? Yeah. Cause I'm not going to be able to, to make it to get a safe abortion. Um, so they told that story, but they didn't tell it in a way that was emotionally compelling. And, and this is something else is our emotions don't necessarily have to do that much with factual input. Um, they have to do a lot with anecdotal input, right? So there are ways to tweak your emotions. They could have added different music. You can do that for yourself if you want to inspire yourself to action about things that you're passionate about. It's not like hearing about something that, that you're not okay with, that's not cool, doesn't need to whip you into a fury every time. In fact, that can burn you out. And you can, um, knowing what tweaks your emotions can give you the power to, to motivate yourself when you need to be motivated and rest when you need to rest and make the difference that you want to make. I think I see where you're coming from better now. I, my, my confusion was that 
you were saying that you shouldn't be swayed by everything that comes across your path because that'd be exhausting and that's that's i think that's absolutely true if, right. I, if i understood you correctly but i do worry that people don't have enough emotional response to things that actually do matter you know so you 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 can show people the numbers of you know do whatever fermi calculation you want for the the number of things that could cause the world to end in the next century and people are like oh wow one in four or one in or, or three and four that sucks well i'm gonna go back and you know finish my whatever i was working on people should care about that yeah. and so, so that's one yeah. of the reasons i try to get people not to use hyperbolic language too much like i saw recently a thing about um the amazon mechanical turk program where people would do basically very simple tasks for very low pay could be sometimes it ended up being as little as like four bucks an hour for things that are just oh, mindless and repetitive and no one wants to do them but you get four bucks an hour for it right but uh, someone commented, that is basically modern slavery. And I was like, dude, okay, th this is a shitty situation. But if you use the term slavery to describe it, what you're really doing is making the actual slavery out there less horrific by comparison. People will be like, oh, that's slavery. I guess slavery isn't all that bad then. Like, save those words for the things that actually are good examples of what slavery is and why we hate it. People who can't choose not to do that. Yes. Um, people who get absolutely who nothing property. in uh, exchange. People, yeah, who don't get the to make those decisions. So, um, three-year marketing background. Um, unfortunately, what we're talking about is human biases here. Mm -hmm. What people respond emotionally to, what people don't. And if you are working for a cause, you have to have somebody you're working with who is good at exploiting those emotional triggers. And um, unfortunately, that's all there is to it. And it's kind of a sad reality that I found out early on that people will not donate money to the cause that saves the most animals. They will instead donate money to the one animal where it's super expensive to give it the surgery. And also that animals from a privileged class of animals, pet dogs. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it was, it's definitely something that's difficult to grapple with. But it's not just true of people who don't know about all of these horrible things going on in the world. It's true of me. It's true of me. I wanted to give it to that one dog so it could have the surgery, mm -hmm. knowing that my money could do much better things, saving um, many, many, many animals. So I guess part of being a rationalist is discovering discovering these biases and maybe in your own life realizing them but also realizing that they they apply to other people and there are ways that you need to work around that anyway um grandma i i hope that you understand rationality the way that the way that i use it a little bit better after we had this discussion i think that you didn't do yourself justice when you said you couldn't do a good quick synopsis if you threw that together in five days i feel like that was uh I haven't seen such a succinct crash course, so oh. I think that was great. Well, I mean, I threw it together in an hour, but it wasn't really a crash course. No one knows how to do rationality any better. They just kind of know what I like about it. That's true. So this wasn't so much of a crash course in how to do rationality. This was a crash course in what is rationality. Yeah. Fair enough. I liked it. That was great. This was a lot of fun. Cool. Is All right. Everything? Thank you for joining us again for, the, for another episode of The Bayesian Conspiracy. You can um, see links to this episode at thebayesianconspiracy.com. Email us at bayesianconspiracypodcast at gmail.com. 
and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And we do have a subreddit as well, The Bayesian Conspiracy. Check it out. We'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Bye.